Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business? Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim GK. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good afternoon, Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Richard Smallwood, one of gospel greats. Uh, he has a, he's a legend in his own time. Before we begin, I'm going to play one of uh, his titles called Total Praise, and we'll have Richard on the line, and we'll go ahead and conduct our interview after that. Again, Total Praise, Richard Smallwood.
Well, Richard, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I, I guess to go back for a moment, I just talked to you before the uh, we went on the air. A lot of our listeners like to hear personal stories of people, uh, of our guests, versus reading the bio. So kind of tell us about where you're from and uh, tell us about yourself. Well, um, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, um, but only stayed there for a very short period of time and actually uh, consider my home D.C. because I've been here most of my life. And um, so grew up here uh, for the most of my childhood here in D.C. and uh, the son of a preacher and been playing music all my life, singing, playing, Writing at the Howard University, uh, where I um, got my undergrad degree in uh, piano, as a piano major. Uh, and then in 2004, I actually went back to Howard School of Divinity and got my master's in divinity. Um, and been doing this, what I've been doing for about 30 years now, recording and and uh, and and doing music ministry. Wow. So tell us about, I guess, the, the early years of people who inspired you as musicians and preachers, and when you discern and say, hey, I want to do this, this is going to be my ministry, this is going to be me for life. Uh, when that, tell us about those moments. I think I've, I think I've always known it. Um, there's never been a time when I really wanted to do anything else. My mother says that when I was, well... Very small. I was still in the crib and wasn't talking yet. I would hum melodies that I would hear at church. I mean, complete melodies, which would sort of freak her out. And uh, <laughs> she sort of knew that, uh, you know, I had music musical talent. So they got me, when I was two, they got me a baby grand piano, a uh, toy baby grand piano that would fit in the crib with me. And um, they say that I would I would bang out the rhythms on the toy piano and and hum whatever the melody was was in my head mm-hmm. so i've always known it um when i was probably 7 i started playing for my father's church my mother exposed me to gospel music ugh every i mean as far back as i can remember so when i was coming up i came up doing probably the the end the middle to the end of the golden age uh, uh golden era of gospel music with people like um, the Roberta Martin singers, um, Clara Ward and the Ward singers, the Davis sisters, those were my influences when I was very, very small. Uh, as I got older, my teenage years, it was more like James Cleveland, people of that, that nature. And when I got to Howard, um, Edmund Hawkins probably was my biggest musical influence in terms of the way he wrote and um that he used the harmonic progressions that he used, getting away from the old traditional style of of, of gospel chords. Um, so he inspired me to to actually write. Um, so uh, you know, it, it it's been a sort of a natural progression and something that I, that I've always known and never really wanted to do anything else. But you know, to, but what I do now. Well, tell us regarding this progression. Um... If we step a moment back uh, from the 60s to uh, today, how music, gospel music has progressed back from when you started playing at church to where it is today? Well, I think, I think that the main thing is uh, because of 
of the different types of, of mediums now, um, it, its exposure uh, and its acceptance is much more than it was when I first started out. You know, gospel music was something that was, you know, really done in church on Sunday mornings and, bas- and basically storefront churches. That was the that was the um, the, the, the train of thought of when pe- people thought about gospel music, uh, but now I mean, with with, with record labels uh, getting behind it uh, for a number of years and treating it, you know, giving you the same kind of budgets that you give any other kind of of music to really make the best product that you can. Um, it's it's you know it's it's been delivered to the masses. Um, through YouTube, through all different types of, of mediums, and of course, uh, um, um, it's it, it, it's it's you you hear it in plays, you hear it on television commercials, you hear it um, everywhere, you know, all over the world. Um, when I travel in Europe, you know, most of the places that I go have gospel choirs: Norway, Japan, Sweden, um, Italy. You know, all these places have you know, gospel choirs and gospel music is a part of, of their um their culture now. They have embraced it. So, uh, you know, it's it's really widespread now, more than I ever thought I would, you know, live to see. It it's kinda of amazing because back during that time, uh some churches you had not divisions but you had styles of congregation. You have the old one hundreds, you had uh, the high church right. uh type music and then you had this movement of gospel coming in. I, I can remember back in the time that a lot of the certain congregations just didn't like gospel music whatsoever because uh, it expressed more than they felt comfortable in expressing. Uh, yeah. But if you took the spiritual, which I didn't understand coming from the outside, I said, well, if I take the musical elements as a spiritual and maybe leave out the the uh, the music, I still end up with the same thing. Um right. Why do you think it was that that they really wasn't embracing it back in the 70s, uh, and even in the 80s, and then uh, finally it caught a hold on fire and spread throughout the world? Well, you know, um, it had everything to do with culture. I mean, I think the unfortunate thing is, and this even um, spread from the church setting to the university setting because they didn't allow it at Howard University when I was, when I was a freshman there was something that you didn't do and you didn't get caught doing in the you know, in the fine arts building or in the practice area. But I think the thing is, um uh, our our culture had been brainwashed so that anything that, you know, came from us, came from our souls, came from our spirits was deemed as being um not worthy. So they embraced European style of music or European style of worship. A lot of churches didn't want to show any kind of emotionalism or or any kind of outward signs of jubilation. It was all very quiet, very staid, and, you know, there were some churches, they wouldn't even allow you to bring drums. When I first started out, I remember we had this thing at a church, and the pastor said, oh, you can't bring those drums in here, you know. So, I mean, it was that, that, I think that reminded them of where they came from, and they were trying to embrace this new quote, uh, Anglo-Saxon, unquote, type thing that uh, they felt that was really showing them as being high class and, and you know, on, on, on a different level. So they looked down 
on, you know, the very thing that, that we, we created. Wow. So even taking, when uh, when I was talking to Evan Hawkins a few months ago, and we were talking about uh, Old Happy Day, when he first started, I said, once his style took a fire and became mainstream, from that point on is when this new movement of music came in. Do you right. start to see the shift? Because now we... Maybe uh, grandma and grandma might not accept it, but however, we're going to start a new church, and the like minds and like bodies, we're going to start this particular movie, and this is the type of movie, music we're going to go from then on. Well, um, well, you know, I, yeah, music is like anything. It, it, it's, it's a cycle, you know, and, and if you look back in history, there have been certain people that have come on the scene that have changed the way... Uh, uh, or, the, or the way that we look at music or the way that we listen to music or even the way that we perform music. I mean, if you want to go back to the early 30s and, and see Thomas A. Dorsey, who was chastised for bringing that kind of music into the church. He was influenced by the blues and by what we call barrel house music, which is the music that they played in the clubs of that day. Um, but, but, you know, when, when he gave his life to Christ and came to the church, um, they looked down on him because they said, you know, we're not going to have that kind of shaking and that kind of rolling and that kind of rocking up in here, you know. So um, Mahaya Jackson was given the same kind of treatment for many of those high Baptist churches. And the same thing when Edmund came along, the same thing when Kirk Franklin came along. So, you know, there, there are always people who come by who change uh, come along who changed the face of gospel music, but being a pioneer, being a trailblazer, is always difficult because you're 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 plowing new ground. So people don't want to accept it. They don't know what it is. They're used for they're used to doing it the old way, and this is new. This chord is new. This beat is new. So we're not going to accept it. So it's a challenge for anyone to come along and, and do different things. And I think that's part of the territory that comes with being a trailblazer or, or a pioneer. When you actually started with your particular style and, and from the crib you started humming and you got your your baby piano and in your crib and started humming tunes, what was your influence at that time? Was it uh, coming from the South made a difference of embracing some of those hymns and then your mind you merged into something else and created that. Kind of tell us about that particular moment of, I'm sure, middle school and high school, when you started expanding out and playing in the church. How did all of that develop? Well, you know, I mean, growing up uh, in my home, um, like I said, the, the early, early years was, was traditional gospel music, such as Clara Ward, such as Roberta Martin, David's sisters, those are people that I embraced. Those are people that my mother took me to see, uh, and I would emulate the people who were playing on the piano, their, their accompanists or whoever. Uh, and then, of course, at the same time, uh, my stepfather, who was a pastor, was a stickler about hymns, so he made sure that I learned all the hymns, all the traditional hymns, that Jesus keep me near the cross, the leaning on the everlasting arms, the, oh, God, I help and they just passed all of those hymns, we would go through the hymn book one by one. I have to play them in, in different keys, and and he sit he st- he stand behind me and make sure that I was playing them right. Um, and then my mother listened to people like um, 
Sarah Vaughn, Ella Fitzgerald, uh, um, Nat King Cole, uh, uh, Rosemary Clooney, people like that. That's why I heard that on the radio. And she also listened to classical music. When I was 11 or either 10 years old, she brought me home a recording of Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 2 and says, you know, I want to expose you to this, and if you like it, I'll take you to some concerts. So I fell in love with this new you know, genre of music that I'd never heard before. And, and so my mother would take me to hear maybe... Uh, the Martin Singers on Saturday night, and on Sunday night she'd take me to hear the National Symphony Orchestra, you know. So, uh, And then somewhere in my teen years, I really got into Broadway music, um, Rodgers and Hammerstein and, and The Sound of Music and My Fair Lady and all those um, great um, Broadway shows. Um, and so I think I didn't really, I didn't really seriously start writing until I was in my late teens, probably 18 or 19. Uh, and when I started writing, all those influences, including the classical, including the Broadway, including all the stuff that I'd ever been exposed to, began to come out, you know, and, and it was different. And I remember record companies telling me what I, what I was writing was not commercial and it would never sell and it was trash and it was no good. But it's all I knew how, how to do. And I believe that God had given me that kind of style and that kind of, um, you know, um, way of, of approaching music for a reason. So I just kept plowing away and kept doing, you know, what I did until somebody finally said, hey, this is not bad. <laughs> That's sort of how it, <laughs> how it went. So when you went, uh, went to Howard and when you had all these pieces in your mind, uh, at school, then it starts to kind of merge to your particular style at that point? Yeah, that's definitely when it started. Um, and when Edwin came on the scene um, um, with Oh Happy Day, uh, and Oh Happy Day actually was one of the more traditional type songs that was on that project. He had some more songs where the chord, like um, I Was Glad When They Said Unto Me and, and uh, um, some other songs that had harmonic progressions that you just didn't hear in the church. Um, mm -hmm. So when I began to write, I began to write with him in mind, trying to use some of those new progressions, but, of course, using the classical and all the other influences that I had. So it really started probably at Howard more than, than anywhere else because that's when I really started writing and started, you know, trying to find my composer side. Um, so that's really when it all started and all those, you know, influences just started to come out. I didn't sit down and say, I think I'm going to write something that sounds like this. It was just when I wrote, everything that I knew musically came out. It wasn't a conscious, you know, kind of decision. It was just who I was. Do you think as a composer, uh, all of this energy that's built into you, this creativity, this God-given talent, then all of a sudden you just burst out of the seams of all the stuff that's been in, that's in your soul and you just do one song after the other, uh, one after the other, because all of it is now coming out of you. Can you just describe how that process works? When you, hey, I have this idea, I'm going to sit there and write it out. This is one song, number one, song number two. Because it seemed like at one point, yeah, you do have some songs, but then all of a sudden you just have burst of composers that start writing everything that comes out of them, and they're all different. 
Yeah, I, I think it, it, it depends on the person. It depends on the composer. I think everybody probably approaches it differently. Uh, certainly my songs come in all different kinds of ways. Um, um, sometimes I'll just get an idea, a melody, uh, or sometimes I'll get a chorus just sort of going over and over in my head. And usually they will not go away until I sit down at the piano and really develop, um, you know, what what God is trying to give me. Um, and there are times, especially here recently in the past, I guess, eight or nine years, where a lot of songs have started to come to me in dreams. So I'll, I'll wake up with wow. um, a particular melody or a, a vamp sometimes or, or even a, a introduction uh, like a like an opening introduction to a song sometimes, so you know they 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 come in different ways. Uh, I'm not I have friends who like who who are composers who sit and write every day. I'm not one of those kinds of people to do that. I, sometimes I'll go a year or two without even writing. Um, um, but when it hits me, I've got to I got to get it out or it'll drive me crazy. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's almost like. Somebody's playing a loop over in your head, and it won't go away. You, you hear it. You think of it day and night. When you're going to sleep, you hear it. When you wake up, you hear it. And, you know, until I um, develop it and really start develop, developing it into a song, it's going to stay there, and it's going to stay there until I finish the song. And once I finish the song, you know, I'm done with it. But it's just like a some, some kind of driving, sometimes annoying kind of thing that just happens until you get that song finished, completed. It has to it has to come out. Yeah. We're gonna take a break one one moment, then we're gonna talk about your, your early career and bring us to the present. Uh we'll be back in a moment with Richard Smallwood, so you can take a break. Be back in one minute. You listen to the core business show. You're listening to the Core Business Show. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours, and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet. Well, we're back in interview with uh, Richard Smallwood. If you want to call in, uh, pl please press the number one. Uh, the number is three four seven three two four three four six zero. I guess Richard, kind of tell us about your early career. Uh, as I, as much as I remember, nineteen eighty, uh, you had maybe an album or two out, and you had one title song. I think is uh, "Oh Lord, Come By Here," an adaptation uh, of that. Uh, yes, actually, um, it was 1982 um, when the first okay. album was released, and I signed with uh, Benson Records in 1981, which was my first uh, <clears throat> my first record deal. And uh, and actually, the hit off of that first 
album was I Love the Lord. That was the one that sort of um, swept the country. Um, and of course, Come By Here was on that, that, that album as, as well, as well as, um, oh, my God, it's been so long ago. Uh, I've Got Something This World Can't Take Away. And away. Donald Lawrence did not long ago redid it. Um, so um, that was that was the first. Um, I think I love the Lord was the one that sort of let people sort of be aware of who the smaller singers were and what I was doing. But even before then, um, like I love the Lord was written in 1975. So when I was in school, actually in in grad school, so um, my church choir recorded it and we sang it around the country. Donald, the, the late. Um, Donald Vales heard it. He recorded it. Uh, the late Albertina Walker heard it. She recorded it, um, as well as a, as a number of other you know artists that recorded. Actually, before the Smallwood Singers ever you know did the first album. So, and I also had been playing for Tremaine Hawkins. I had been playing for Edwin Hawkins. So I've been touring with them. So although I hadn't been recording, my music was sort of still starting to get out there and. Uh, um, was traveling and doing, you know, sort of, sort of getting into what it was that I really um, wanted to do in terms of my 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 career and my ministry. Okay. If anybody have any questions, just dial one, and we'll put you on the air. Tell us about I love the Lord. Um, it's a mixture. Tell us about how you came up with that particular piece and what it entails, uh, because the chord progression is different. Everybody can't sing it. But once you have the, the right voices, it's an awesome piece of work. Thank you. Well, uh, wow. Like I said, I was I was uh, in. I, I went back to grad school to major in music for a minute, and then I then I stopped and, and started traveling and doing what it is that I do. But while I was in grad school, my church choir, my then uh, home church, was Union Temple here in in Washington D.C. and um, they were doing. Uh, we had done one album, like a you know independent sort of custom album that we did, and you know sold to church members and family members and whatever. And the second one we were getting ready to record, uh, which was called "Give Us Peace," uh, and I needed to write some songs for that. And I was down at Howard in the practice area, and the words to that, you know, are one of those old hymns that I grew up um, hearing. Uh, and I just wanted to set it in, set it to some new music, um, and the melody just melody just sort of came to me while I was, you know, fiddling around on the piano in the practice area at Howard, and that's basically, you know, where where it came from. Wow, yeah, it's kind of amazing at music school uh, during uh, that earlier period. Uh, teachers usually run out of the the music out of their offices. Hearing one lick of gospel, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> throwing people yeah. out of the uh, during that time, throwing people out of the music room. And oh so, yeah. If you want to practice with a musical group, you got to do it after hours after they have left campus. After they left, that's right. We even had a, a guard uh, um, who used to patrol the halls, and if he heard you playing before, during hours, or after hours, because <laughs> he was a security <laughs> guard, so he would stay until the building closed. He would report you to the dean, and uh, you would get reprimanded, you know. So, um, of course, a lot of people don't know, but uh, a lot of us uh, who were students at Howard University banded together 
and had her take over, and we took over the, the fine arts building uh, because the dean would not hear us or hear our request in terms of establishing, uh, you know, African-American music other than African-American classical music or Negro spirituals into our curriculum. We had we had no jazz band, we had no jazz department, we had no uh, African-American music studies. Everything was, was classical, which I had no problem with because I grew up on classical music. But I was like, if we can hear their music and, and experience their music, why can't we experience their own, our own? So we, we took over the Fine Arts Building. We pulled the piano out on the um, front steps, and I played gospel music for about three or four days, I guess. Um, and we wouldn't let anybody in the building until the dean finally, I guess, said, well, in order to get rid of these fools, let's, let's, let's hear what they got to say. And we presented our list of grievances and what we wanted, and that's how the jazz department got started at Howard University. Wow. Um, because they, they, just was, they were not allowing any kinds of black music that was not either Negro spirituals or classical uh, oriented. It's kind of strange because you go right down the street to uh, to the other schools, the other uh, right. schools in you know, Georgetown. They're playing it. Uh, they have the departments and the budgets and so forth Listen, for it. I, when so I, when I a, go ahead. When, when, I, when I graduated from Howard, um, the first job that I got, the University of Maryland, which is not a black institution, said, we want you to come and take over our gospel choir, and we want to make it a part of the School of Music, Department of Music, and we want, you know, the students who do take it to get a credit for it. So it'll be like a class. Now, they wouldn't even let us sing it in at Howard, you know, at that time. <laughs> and here's a, you know, a non-black university saying, we want to incorporate this into our curriculum, you know, and give the students, you know, a credit for it. So... Um, it just shows, goes to show you how, you know, our minds had been really sort of confused about a lot of things, especially things that, that we had done and we had created ourselves as being something less than than good. Let's go back real quick regarding I Love the Lord. Uh, how did that come about within the Preacher's Wife uh, movie when they came to you? Um Mervyn Warren, who uh, formerly of Take Six, uh, and actually who's the music director for The Preacher's Wife, called me and said, you know, Whitney asked me to call you um, because we're doing this movie called The Preacher's Wife. And she grew up singing I Love the Lord in church. And it's one of her favorite songs. And she wanted to know, you know, would you be opposed to her doing it in the movie? I was like, of course I would not be. Opposed, <laughs> I'd be more than happy. You know, so that's that's basically how it happened. It was a song that she knew, a song that she loved, and, and clearly used to sing it. You know, when she was coming up um, in Newark at her at her home church. So um, that's basically how that that came about. When you finally heard the recording, uh, not only you know you heard your music done in a certain way, but just hearing a voice like that, every musician's dream. Of right. someone great, but someone singing your music and just taking it uh, a song to their own way to another level. What does that feel like? 
It was incredible. I remember, I remember, you know, while they were actually working on it, they were sending me, like, rough copies of what she was doing in the studio, you know. So I sort of heard it, although I wasn't there in person, I, I sort of heard it being built from the ground up and, and that kind of thing. Of course, they would call and ask, did I have any suggestions? And I was just like, let her sing it like she feels it. That's, you know, mm. she got the melody. That's all she needs, you know. And so, of course, and of course, hearing the, you know, the final project was just... Uh, an incredible thing. It was an incredible feeling. And I think it's that way. Um, I, I don't think it's anything you ever get used to. I mean, um, because it's people that you uh, that you admire, people that, that, are, that are, you know, great musicians, great singers, or whoever, and when you hear them, you know, do your music, it just sort of blows you away. And it's certainly something that I never get used to. I'm always honored and I'm always, you know, grateful that, they love what I do that much to, to to even want to, you know, to do it. When it came to the progression of the very end of that particular song, how did that, because it has like three, I mean, two different sections, and this is the third, how did you come up with that idea of the very end? You mean I hasten to his throne? I hasten to that, his throne. Honestly, <laughs> I do not remember you know, we're talking 1975 here, so... Has it stayed intact since then, or has yeah, it progressed? It's the, it's the exact same way that, that, that I did it when I when I first wrote it. Um, the only difference is that when we first... And I don't think we never... We didn't even do this when the smallest thing is recorded, but before we recorded it, on our Hasten to His Throne... Um, I, I would split the choir, and some were singing our Hasten to His um, uh, I'll hasten to his throne, and the others are doing um, sort of a, a fugue kind of thing on on the syllable do, um, do, 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 you know, and the mm-hmm. alphas would do something in, in, in counterpoint to that, and the tenors would do something in counterpoint to that, and when we got to the smallest thing, got to the album, you know, we were like, I think this is going to be too difficult because we really think that it's a song that people are going to want to sing, but they'll never be able to figure out that part. So just this saying I'll hasten to his throne and leave the the dudes out. So that's that's really the only difference than the very, very original one, you know, had. Wow. Your style, uh, even coming from 82, and, you know, you took the Clark Sisters, you took the, the Hawkins, James Cleveland, all had a different style. Yours were, uh, took a different direction in itself that we haven't heard of, but it wasn't from this this end to this end, if it's making sense. Yours came way over here and brought a new level for ensemble music. Kind of describe, this is the way you felt at the time. You, it, This is who you are. You just want to be you and not be uh, in this particular box in one sense. Exactly. In your style of music. Exactly. I mean, I don't. I don't. I wasn't trying to be different, or I wasn't trying to do something, you know, earth-shattering that no one had done before. It was just who I was. The hard part was the record labels trying to make me be someone who I wasn't. I remember on the very first album, they put this producer 
um, the White Brother with with me and said, you know, we want him to produce the album. I had never produced anything in my life other than my little church album, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just making it up as I went along. So I was excited to get a professional producer. He had produced um, Lana Harris and Sandy Patty, and he had like a you know a really great track record, you know, and and but he hears my music and he says that you know basically it's junk. And that uh, he would have to, they would have to find some, um, some material for me to record. So I, you know, for about four or five days, they took me into a vault with all this music and let me hear all this stuff. To try to find something, you know, that that I liked. And I kept saying, I mean, you know, all this music is nice, and uh, I think it's great, but uh, it's not me, you know. So that's about the fourth day, he just really got frustrated. He said, you know, well, what is you? You know, what music is you? He said, play something that, that, is, that, that, that speaks to who you are. So I sat down and played Out of the Lord. He said, okay, that's, that's a great song. Who wrote that? I was like, I did. And, of course, he had the tape with all the music on it, so clearly he didn't listen to it, you know, all, all mm-hmm. the, the demo that I had recorded with all this music on it. So he was like, well, play something else. So I played another song. I left something or something, and, and he's like, um... Well, yeah, okay, now I like that melody. Who wrote that? Well, I did, you know. So we went through that for like about 45 <laughs> minutes. And then he calls me at the hotel down in Nashville. He called me at the hotel that night. I got a great idea um, for the for the record. And I was like, what? He was like, let's record your music. So I went through, you know, all this stuff, you know, like about a week of, t- of being told that I couldn't write. No one was writing anything like that. It didn't make sense. Um, no one would understand it. Um, why the classical stuff in there, and you know all this kind of stuff, and and you know, to the point where he finally says, "Okay, let's record your music." So that's, you know, trying What'd to, you, you know, and I okay. and, and, and and just going back like I was saying before with Edwin and 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 Kurt and Thomas Dorsey and other people like that. You know, it's always hard going against the grain coming in doing something that nobody else is doing because the the, the music industry is very narrow-minded in terms of they look at what's a hit. So if somebody comes out and makes a hit, they want everybody to sound like that one one particular person, sing like them, write like them, whatever. So it's like it doesn't leave room for creativity. You have to, They try to put you in this box and and make you fit. And for me, it was like trying to put a, you know, a square peg in a round hole because I didn't fit. It, that, that was not me. So I just had to keep, you know, elbowing my way and say, hey, this is me. I'm going to do this until finally somebody, you know, would listen. Do you think they were intimidated? I don't know. I, I remember <laughs> the the um, the producer who they did the uh, who did the first album um, when we were recording. I love the Lord. Um, and I was doing the uh, – they hired all these session musicians from Nashville. So I was the only, you know, little black, black brother there playing the piano. And so somewhere near um, the uh, um, end of the song, I'm playing, and all of a sudden the producer says, that was the wrong chord that that you just played. And I was like, Wrong chord. So I, I said, well, maybe my finger slipped or something. So I went back and did it again. He said, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. And I said, why is that wrong? He said, because it doesn't make sense. So I was like, 
well, it makes sense to me. He says, I'm the producer. It doesn't make sense. So, I mean, you know, I come from the radical kind of Howard University kind of <laughs> background. And I was like, wait a minute, you know. So he calls, So he he, he breaks uh, the session and says, okay, let's have a break. I, I need to talk to you. So I said, okay. So he had no idea that I had been musically trained or I had a degree in music. I, I don't know what he thought. So he brings me in the room. He tra- goes to explain why this chord is wrong. So I let him finish, and when he finished, I said, well, actually the chord that you have in question is called a secondary dominant, and the role of a secondary dominant is that although it's not related to the key, and I went on to explain to him what it was, and he sat there and looked at me and turned like really, really red, and <laughs> then he said, let's break. You know, so we went to lunch and he came back. He said, "The chord is fine. Just just use use the chord." So you know, it was just it was a, it was a really strange kind of of uh, situation that I had to continue to go through. Like I had to keep trying to prove myself to people who I guess didn't understand what I was doing or certainly didn't believe in what I was doing. Um, so it was quite a quite a um, <laughs> quite a journey. Wow. So if we bring you back to 10 years in the future to 95 or 96 when you came out with with Total Praise, the the Adoration album, tell us about that journey. Because now you moved from the ensemble back to uh, a choir now. Tell us how that right. came to be. Well, um, for probably during, during the time the Smallwood Singers for near the end of the smallest singer era, I guess for about seven or eight years, God had been dealing with me to start a new group. Uh, and I'm not a person who embraces change very well, and uh, I was like, I've been doing this all these years. You know, what are people going to say if I come out, you know, with, a, you know, a choir ensemble? They're going to be like, where are the smallest singers, you know? And so I decided what I would do was to... Um, do a, a one-album thing, and I'd get some people together um, who I knew and just form like a little ensemble. That was an official thing, and uh, and and do that. And I said, maybe this is what God is talking about. Certainly I had no idea or or plans to do it as a ongoing thing. Um, and at the same time, my godbrother was very ill, um, battling with brain cancer, and uh, actually I was his caregiver. And uh, so it was a very difficult time for me. A lot of things were going on in my life, and uh, I was sitting at the piano one day, and total praise just, like, popped into my mind. Like, I, I, I tell some, sometimes when I'm doing um, 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 songwriting classes, uh, I'll say to the students that there are times when you get music that it seems like it's already written. You're just like the the conduit or the or the vessel that it that it comes through because it comes through you completed. You don't go back and, you know, tinker with the melody or the rhythm or the harmonies. You know this is it and that's how Total Praise, you know, came to me and um it, at the point where it was given to me, I was going through a difficult time because my mother was ill at the same time, and mm-hmm. uh, it was really depressing, you know, with so many family members who were ill and looking to me, and I felt so helpless. And 
and, you know, unprepared to deal with it. And God just sort of gave me that song in the middle of, of my, my depression and just told me, you know, I see your tears and I feel your pain, but I still need your praise even in your valley uh, situation that you're going through because I still got your back and, you know, it's going to come out, you know, it's, it's working for your good even though you can't, even though you can't see it or feel it right now. And um, it was, uh, that's, that's where the song just sort of came from. It just sort of flowed through me and I taught it to, um, I got vision together and taught it to them and I think that was the end of rehearsal <laughs> when I taught it because everybody was just like went forth in a total praise, literally. Uh, and um, little did I know that it was going to take off um, the way that it did. But whenever, I should have known because whenever I would he- let somebody hear it, the reaction was always the same. And my manager heard it. He had tears in his eyes. And my, never seen my manager cry, you know. And um, so God just sort of took that song and just sort of took me to a new level in my ministry and took me to places that I certainly had never been before and, um, you know, into situations and opened the doors that, that certainly I never dreamed of would, would be open. So, uh, you know, it was, I think it was just God's natural way of progressing me to where I was predestined to to go. So on the amen portion at the, the very end of the, the piece, how did that actually flow then um, as a third element? It just came. It just I just remember when I when I finished the song, the you know, the the the, the middle portion of the song, um it was uh I just wanted a big ending. I wanted an amen like a prayer like the end of a prayer or something like that. And that concept just popped into my head. And uh I remember um um I didn't uh, have, I had, I think I had uh, one of those four-track recorders. I could hear it in my mind, but I really needed to hear someone sing it. So I remember I recorded all the tracks, you know, I mean, you know, the, all the parts, rather, on this four-track recording where I could put one uh, part down on one track and then play them together and to make sure what I was hearing in my head made sense in terms of, the, you know, the amens and, that's basically how it uh, how it came to be. When you transitioned after that, uh, went to live in Detroit, and then persuaded uh, it, progression of the same format of pieces, more for choir. Uh, when you got to uh, persuaded with this anthem of praise and uh, the other pieces, it seemed like you had more of a, a vision uh, of. I'm not going to say uh, more theatrical. It had another vision at the very beginning that the other pieces didn't have. Well, um, you know, I actually, Anthem of Praise came to me in an airport. Um, wow. And uh, I was like, what is this? And I remember uh, just putting it down on my phone, that, you know, what I could remember. And, of course, once I got back, I just started doing it piece by piece. In fact, um, it took me a while for it to come together. Even sometimes when I would come and teach it, uh, I didn't like what I hear, and I would say scratch that, and I'd go back to the drawing board at home, and then come back and 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 redo it. So, because of the kind of song I, I envisioned it being an anthem, something very grand, something very 
you know, pomp and circumstance kind of feel to it, but still gospel. I wanted uh, an introduction that would introduce it because I wanted it to be the first song on the project. So I wanted something that um, would sort of set the tone for where this was going. Because in my mind, I could see, you know, the Levitical priest, you know, carrying the Ark of the Covenant and you know this procession through the holy city and you know that that kind of kind of thing and so um one of my uh, protégés Darren Atwater who is an incredible orchestrator and musician and played for me a number of years um I called him and I said I want this I, I let him hear what I was doing and I said I want something that goes in the beginning of that that's really going to set the stage it's the first song in the actual uh, concert recording, but I also wanted to set the stage for this song as well as the concert. And so that he came up with the whole uh, March of the Priest, you know, thing in the beginning. Um, so that's basically how it started. You know, I just, it just, I just sort of go with what I feel or what I hear. Yeah. It's not, I don't necessarily sit down and plan, I'm going to go this way or I want to do something different this way. It's just basically where I am at that that time in my life, what's going on in my life, and what I hear musically and where I am musically. I have a question here from the chat room. They're asking about, are there any musical arrangements from uh, uh, those albums uh, for orchestra? I guess I'm assuming uh, the adoration yeah, and this particular for orchestra, album. orchestra, there are some... Um, uh, it depends on which album it is. Some, they would have to get in touch with Darren Atwater. The other, they would have to get in touch with Stephen Ford, depending on what album they were they were talking about. Um, but there's songbooks, you know, to all of those albums, starting back with, uh, uh, well, with, with, with Live in, in, in Atlanta. There have been a songbook. So even those who want just the accompaniment or the right <laughs> vocal parts, there's some yeah. books for for that as well. So Stephen Ford, they go to his website. They can try to get the uh, arrangements get, from yeah, the arrangements from Promises, the arrangements from Journey. Uh, for the anthem for the anthem uh, for the uh, Live in DC um, persuaded album, that would be Darren Atwater. Okay. And does Darren Atwater have a website? You can just go to. Darren uh, at water at AOL dot com and just hit okay. him up on his email. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Uh, last couple of questions when it go, uh, went into your other projects uh, from Journey up to the present to Promises. Kind of tell us about the, those particular pieces from that point to your last uh, album. Well, Journey was uh, something I really wanted to do because I wanted to work with some of the people that really meant a lot to me, um, who had been influencing, who influenced me in some kind of way musically. Um, so what I did in Journey, we did that live in New York, and uh, um, I contacted uh, Shaka Khan and, and asked her what she would be a part of, and she graciously accepted. I, um, I, I contacted my friends, uh, the Hawkins family, uh, my dear, dear friend Walter, who's no longer with us, you know, and said, I want the family back together because I want you a part of this album. So he and I wrote songs together for the family for that particular project. 
Um, of course, I wrote one for Chaka. I had Kelly Price there and other people whose voices I really admired and, and uh, always wanted to work with. And it was a great celebration there at the Hammerstein Ballroom in, in New York City. Um, so the, the songs from that uh, particular project, other than the, the ones we, the couple of ones we did by ourselves, were basically songs that were um, written especially for those people's voices or those people's styles and, and that, that, that kind of thing. Um, uh, and what was that experience like? It was great. It was incredible. It was incredible. Everybody was so happy to be a part of it. And, and uh, actually, Aretha Franklin was supposed to be a part of that night as well, but uh, um, there were some scheduling conflicts, and we couldn't pull it off. So actually, the song that she was going to record that night, she actually recorded on her last album. So um, that was a thrill too. I grew up listening to Aretha, so you know. Wow. Um, but but it was a great experience. I mean, there were no, and of course I know the Hawkins since I was 19 years old. So I mean, they're mm-hmm. friends, you know. And 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 then Chaka was just a beautiful person who had recently um, been turned on to my music through a song I wrote for Karen Clark Sheard, "A Secret Place." Uh, she she had been singing it. And then when she researched it, she started really getting into other stuff that I've been doing and called me and told me she was doing a secret place on TBN and wanted to know what I fly out and play it for. You know, so I was like, are you serious? I'll walk <laughs> <laughs> to California play it for you. You know, so it started a relationship then, and she became a part of the, you know, the album. So that, that night was just an incredible night. It was hard to put it together, just the logistics of the thing, being in New York and stuff, but uh, it was a wonderful night and one that I will always remember. Also got the original Smallwood Singers back together for that project, which was a great, great thing because we've lost two of our members since then, and, and so it was a blessing. It was the last time we all, you know, sang together. So it was, it was, it was a great, wonderful, memorable night. Tell us about Promises, uh, your, your newest, newest project. Yes, Promises... Uh, really for about four years, probably, I didn't write. Um, that was when my mother died, right after we did Journey. And it was almost a year before I was really able to go back and, and, and go in the studio and finish Journey and put it out. And then after that, it was just a a drought, if you will. I, I couldn't write. Um, it just, I really thought that... Uh, I had written my last song. I really thought that was that was it because there was nothing coming. And, of course, I go periods without writing, but this certainly I had never gone this long without having any musical ideas or even an interest in doing it. Mm-hmm. So I basically had just sort of said, well, you know, maybe this is it. I've written enough songs. Maybe I've done what I'm supposed to do in, in terms of writing, and I just want to write again. I'll continue to sing the old songs or whatever. And... Um, Around that time was when the recession really hit really bad, and and uh, I think it affected everyone. And I was sitting in my living room, and God just sort of spoke to me and said, um, everybody is focusing on what CNN is saying, what MSNBC is saying, and what the media is saying about you know the recession and people getting foreclosed in terms of their homes, losing their jobs, whatever. But I've made 
my people certain promises, and if I promise you that, then I'm going to make sure that it comes to pass. And people need to be reminded of what my promises are. And as soon as I got that 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 feeling of of of, of what God was saying in terms of, of what His promises were, I knew that's what the next CD had to be. And immediately music started coming. In fact, at okay. one point it started coming so fast that I couldn't keep up with it. I've always been a person that writes one song at a time because I've never had. I've always had a one-track mind. Don't give me. Mm-hmm. I cannot multitask. That is not my. That is not my gift. Uh, but these songs were coming so fast that I couldn't even. I couldn't even keep up with it. I was just like, wow! And they were coming in dreams. They were coming when I was walking down the street, and all of them had to do with God's promises. Uh, and it, it, that that CD means a lot to me because first of all, it's the first music that I wrote after Mom passed, after not being able to write for so long, and also it, it really speaks to us and reminds us of the God that we serve. And if He promises that He will be our our shelter and our our finances and 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 our healer and whatever it is that we need, then He's going to stand by that, regardless of what the economy looks like, regardless of what the naysayers say, God is a God of promise. And so that's what that, that, that particular project is about. And it's the first studio project that I've done in quite a while since the smallest thing is actually. So mm-hmm. um, I, I really uh, enjoyed, enjoyed doing it. It's one of, my, one of the closest to my heart. Uh, we have a last few questions real quick regarding some of my joy. Um, when you collaborated with the Gators, how did that come to be? When you collaborated with them on that? Um, after the release of the first um, album with Benson, um, we went to sing in Indianapolis. Uh, Bill Gaither has a praise gathering, a big convention that he has every year. And he invited us. He heard us in Nashville and came up to me and said, you know, would you come and sing at, at my praise gathering? And we did. And he was so excited about it. He said, you know, have you ever written with anybody else? And I was like, mm, not really. He said, well, would you like to write? I'd love to write with you. And I was like, sure, I'd, I'd love to do that. That's, that's, that's quite an honor. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, we talked about it for a couple of years, but we never really got together. But we happened to be in Nashville at the same time um, doing business, and we ran into each other, and uh, he said, hey, you got a minute? Let's go find a piano. <laughs> and that's what we did. We went down in in the basement of one of the um, record of one of the uh, labels, and he said, uh, "I've got this idea about Jesus being the center." He said, "I don't know if it's the center of my life, center of my love, center of my existence, center of something, but if I, you know, if I said Jesus was the center of the nucleus of who I am, what do you hear musically when I say that?" And I just basically played the course, like like total praise, all at one time. It just wasn't like I was, uh, you know, trying to repair it or go back and redo this. It just sort of came all at one time, and that's basically how it was born. We we uh, um, put the lyrics to it from there, and then I think I flew out to his house about maybe a month later, maybe not even that long, and, and Gloria, his wife, who was an incredible lyricist, um, she came in and we started working on the verses together and that's basically how it how it came to be. Okay. Uh regarding any advice of people coming through the system today, what advice would you give them? Uh as musicians and artists? 
Well, I think I think I think the, the main thing is that uh, um, is that first of all, get an education in your craft. You don't necessarily have to get a degree, but but get some kind of knowledge in whatever it is that you do. If you sing, if you're a singer, learn how to sing correctly. If you if you if you're uh, uh, a musician, pianist, or whatever, keyboard player, learn how to read. You know, learn how to play different styles. Learn how to be diverse, so you can just play more than just the top ten hits on the Billboard charts. You know, be able to be diverse because the more diverse you are, the more work you will get. Always be under a covering so you have a shepherd that can lead you because if this this has got to be ministry. It can't be anything else but that. Um, and so you need to get fed so that you can feed other people through your gift uh, and get people around you who know about the business, who you can trust, who understand your direction, who understand ministry, um, who understand where you want to go in terms of what God's vision for you is uh, to assist you in the in the business end of it. And then learn all you can about the business yourself um, so you know what you're doing, you know what you're signing, and you know, um, um, you know what directions to go, the, the correct direction to go. What you see yourself a uh, hundred years from now? Uh, how you like to be remembered? Um, just someone who you know who, who loved God, um, who loved ministry, and who loved music. And and you know, hopefully, you know, my music will, as long as as there is a planet Earth, you know, the music will still minister to people. Uh, I, I want my music to be like. You know, the precious Lord, take my hands, the amazing graces, those kinds of songs that still minister to people, you know, even today. And the the author or the composer doesn't necessarily have to perform it themselves, but the you know, in order for it to be effective. But the music has a life of its own, and it's, it has an anointing on it that will you know that will bless people and encourage people for years and, and years to come. And if there was a song that speaks that says Richard Smallwood, what song would that be? It definitely probably would be Total Praise, yeah. yeah that would be wow. Well, Rich, I really appreciate you, you spending an hour with us and going on a lot of information over a 30-some-odd-plus career in your life at the very beginning. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day. You too, now. Take care, Richard. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to play a couple of tracks real quick uh, from Richard Smallwood. Um, I'm going to start with uh, Jesus in My Joy, I Love the Lord, and I'm going to also play a couple of tracks from his recent album, I Promise, uh, beginning with Sowing in Tears and Trust. So this one would be Center of My Joy, and the next one would be I Love the Lord.
heart of my contentment, hope for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. When I've lost my direction, you're the compass for my way. You're the fire and light when nights are long and cold. In sadness, you are the laughter that shatters all my fears. When I'm all alone, your hand is there to hold. Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For a free quote on equipment leasing and financing, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. And fill out the information to receive your free quote. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to The Core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. Thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet.